and it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Do we bow down to Christ's genius and power and authority? Is Christ at the start of everything? Is he superior? And is he, in fact, the owner of everything? Well, this morning, the answers to these questions and more, we invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy. And now, Pastor Robert Elliott. And so Christ is the start of everything. And by now you see after every point about the exalted Christ, I'm saying take us back to Galatians 4.19, which says part of spiritual maturity, a way to understand spiritual maturity is Christ being formed in you. And so if Christ is the start of everything, the question becomes when he is being formed in us, do we bow down to his creative genius and power? Some men, but mostly our sisters, make meals regularly for families. Do you think that every time you make a meal, you create a meal, you could think about Jesus Christ being the start of everything? As you get the meat thawed or as you get the ingredients out of the cupboard to make something for dinner, as you go for those first ingredients, could you think... Jesus Christ is the start of everything. He's the start of my salvation. He's the start of my sanctification. He's the start of my home in heaven. He's the start of my glorification. He's the start of my obedience. He's the start of my submission. We move on, point four. Christ is the owner of everything. Christ is the owner of everything, 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Here it goes, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These are references to angels, either bad or good angels. This is saying that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Because one of the heresies that the church at Colossae was falling into was the error that they ought to worship angels. This is a corrective, among other things, for that heresy. And so Jesus Christ is the owner of everything. It says in 16, verse 16, all things have been created by him and for him. Uh, there's a picture coming up of a nice house. The thing about houses is they always are built by builders. Houses just don't materialize. They don't just start out of nothing. Only God creates out of nothing, ex nihilo creation. God spoke the universe into existence. He created out of nothing. But a house is not created out of nothing. There's a lumber, there's cement, there's all the things, drywall, all the things required to build a house. But the thing about building a house, a nice house, is that house is built one way to sell on spec. But that house is built even better if the builder himself and his family are going to live in it. The materials selected, the quality of those materials, the things that suit the family's lifestyle and preferences will be tailor-made in a house that a builder builds for himself. Jesus Christ is the owner of everything. He owns you. 
You don't own yourself. He owns you. He built you in the Holy Spirit at the moment of regeneration when you were born again. He built you to be his habitation, that the Holy Spirit of God would live in you. He owns you. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Whenever you see the word owner, owner's manual, other context, when you see the word owner, do you think you could remember that I am not my own? I am owned by my Savior. And just like the builder who builds that house for himself, owns it and can use it as he sees fit. When you and I are owned by Jesus Christ since conversion and he is Lord and Savior but also Lord, then he can use you as he sees fit. Are you letting him? I don't feel like teaching Sunday school, Lord. I know you're leading me, but I'm kind of busy. I've raised my children. I'm a little tired of children. He's the owner. He owns you. He has the right to direct you and expect that you will be directed. When Christ is being formed in you and spiritual maturity is happening, then you live like Christ owns you. With your money, with your time, with your talents, you live like Christ owns you. Number five, Christ is eternal. A being that is eternal has no beginning, and a being who is eternal has no ending. Jesus Christ is eternal. The life he gives us when we are co-crucified with him at conversion is his life, which is eternal life. No beginning, no ending. Christ is eternal. Verse 17, please see it with me. He, Christ, is before all things. The only way that Christ can be before all things is that he is the eternal creator. He is before all things. He is eternal. Jesus Christ is always prior. You cannot walk into a situation parenting, going to school, in retirement, that Jesus Christ is not first there with a plan, with a purpose. He is eternal. He's always prior. He was prior to you walking into the building this morning. He will be prior to what you do a year from now. He will be prior to what I am preaching now and every time I preach. He will be prior to those who will be saved. He is prior to those of us who already have been saved. He is prior to us in our sanctification process. He is prior to us in our glorification. Christ is eternal, without a beginning and without an ending. And one of Jesus' precious names emphasizes his eternality. Jesus is the I am. The constant I am. He's not the I was. He's not the I will be. He is the great I am. He is eternal. This means that the past and the present and the future for you are equally vivid to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ equally understands and knows your past and your present and your future. 
That's comforting. And so maybe whenever you look at your wristwatch, sometimes it'll say you're late. Sometimes it will say you're early. Sometimes it will say you're right on time. Whenever you look at your wristwatch, could you try to remember that the one that you worship, the one that owns you, the one that took you out of sin, is the one who holds your past and your present and your future with wise love. Those who are letting Christ be formed in them, Galatians 4.19, understand that when the eternal Christ is being formed in them, that they live like they already have eternal life. They don't see heaven as eternal life. They see eternal life beginning at conversion on earth and running through heaven and eternity. Do you see it that way? That heaven's your home and then you're visiting earth? That you're a tourist here to bring honor and glory and majesty and obedient service to Jesus? But really... Because he gave you his life, which is eternal life, you have it now on earth, and you can enjoy it all through time on earth until you're with him forever in heaven. Maybe when you use your wristwatch, you could remember that. Sixth and last this morning, Christ is the sustainer of creation. The second part of verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in him all things hold together. In Christ All things hold together. That is to say, Christ is the sustainer of creation. Deism is a belief system with a very low view of God's involvement in his creation. Deism believes that the creator God is like a watchmaker. That God created the universe, planet Earth, nature, and people, but then he walked away from it all. He set it up as a watch, the the deists say, and just let it tick. And now he doesn't intervene, according to the deists' viewpoint, in personal lives, in creation, and in anything. He's got a spectator posture over his creation. That's what deists think, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the personal creator, God, created everything that was created, but he holds an interest in that creation. He sustains it. He holds it together. And the implication B is if he didn't hold it together, it would come apart. Would your life come apart if Jesus Christ didn't hold it together? Are you tired of trying to hold your own life together? It's very exhausting to hold your own life together. You were never meant to hold your whole life together. When Jesus became your Savior and your Lord and your friend and gave you the Holy Spirit so you would not be an orphan, he promised to hold you together. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. I've told you before that in the war in Vietnam, They used helicopters. I'm told that the mechanics who worked on those helicopters called the massive nut on the top of all the rotor blades the Jesus nut because they understood that as the nut held the rotor blades and the gear drives and such in place so the helicopter could fly, Jesus holds believers' lives together so they can work. 
Jesus holds local churches together so they can be unified and about God's purposes for God's glory. He is the creator of all, the firstborn over all creation. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Without him, stars lose their places in the galaxies. Without him, oceans overspill their shores. Without him, atoms collapse. Without him, life on earth is unsustainable. Without him, the seasons skip and are random. Without him, crops don't grow. Without him, hearts stop beating. Without him, bodily organs go out of harmony with each other. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ holds all things together, and he holds them together well. Let him hold you together. Maybe an application point, and this is so weak compared to what we've just learned, but a staple. Maybe when you see a staple holding pages together in a certain order so they can be read, they don't get lost, maybe every time you see a staple, you can think that my Savior, my Lord, my Master holds me together, my marriage together, my children together, my church together, my world together, my universe together. So we've climbed halfway up the Mount Everest of teaching about Jesus Christ as found in Colossians chapter 1. We're halfway up the mountain. God willing, we'll get up to the top next Sunday. But I hope you're enjoying the view. I hope you're enjoying the vista of what you can see about Jesus in this passage. And I hope it will make a difference in your life. We have some homework. See a photocopier or a photocopy? Remember that Jesus makes God visible. Hear the name Adam. Be thankful that you are in the second Adam. Create a meal. Thank Jesus that he created you and and all of his universe. See the word owner. Ponder who exactly owns you. Look at your wristwatch. Humble yourself to worship the eternal Savior. Notice a staple. Praise Jesus that he holds everything together so that it works. He is Lord. He is Lord. He has risen from the dead, and he is Lord. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 1 Peter 3.15, I leave with you. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Church family, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Let Christ be formed in you. Lord Jesus, be formed in our lives. Strip away sin, strip away self be formed in us. For we pray this in your beautiful name, which is a strong name. Amen. And now, today's personal God story. Hi, my name is Christopher Cartwright. I was born right here in Nassau in 1989. Uh, For the first seven years or so of my life, I was uh, 
what we call an MK, a missionary kid, and later on a PK, what we call a pastor's kid. Those seven years, uh, three of them in Rumkey, right there in the Bahamas, and the other four in New Hampshire, in the United States, as a missionary kid, I was in a small bubble of believers. Uh, my parents worked for a ministry called His Mansion Ministries. My mom worked with women who experienced some form of abuse, whether it's drug or sexual abuse. And we lived in a large home uh, with myself, my brother, and my parents, and about 15 women who lived upstairs, and we lived downstairs. So my upbringing was unorthodox, to say the least. And my father worked with men who had come off the street. Some had been victims of abuse. Some had been on drugs. Some had just fell into bankruptcy and depression. And they all came to this ministry to seek counseling. And they were counseled, put to work. They had devotions. And they went through rehabilitation, put into a schedule um, where they had to study the Word and learn about the Lord. After that, we moved back to the Bahamas where I was taken out of that little bubble that I was used to for the first seven years of my life, and I was put into a private school here in Nassau. My parents came back to Calvary Bible Church, which was the church that commissioned them as missionaries in the first place. And the next seven years of my life and beyond was basically living at Calvary Bible Church. Uh, we were there every time the doors were open. My father um, eventually became one of the elders there. And so although not in the same bubble as the first seven years, I still was surrounded by and immersed in the scriptures and other believers uh, on a weekly basis. And uh, like most PKs, pastor kids you may have met, you know, they say pastor's kids can be some of the, some of the worst kids you know or some of the most two-faced kids you know. And I was one of those. I was one person in school, another person at church. Because, you know, he, he has, he's, he's in a constant struggle to be cool uh, in the eyes of his peers. And uh, peer pressure was certainly something I dealt with in high school and gave in uh, most of the time, throughout most of my high school. Although my friends knew that if they were going to hang out with me or spend the weekend with me, that they were most likely going to have to go to church at some point. Um, and most of them were cool with it. I had some really good friends. But, you know, they would come and we would go to youth group or we would go to church. But at school, I was a completely different person. And I probably did a terrible job of being a Christian example to them. But being that person, I still knew that this was not a way I could live forever. I knew I had to get serious at some point that, you know, you can't fool people forever. You have to, you have to get serious. I knew Jesus uh, was someone that demanded either all or nothing. He was not into the lukewarm thing. Um, I had learned that much from youth group. And so upon graduating from high school, in 2007, I did not decide upon a college right away, and both my youth pastor and my older brother went to a Bible school in New York called Word of Life Bible Institute. And so since I did not have a college to go to yet, I said, well, hey, you know, I'll head up there and, you know, kill some time. And But the Lord had very different plans for me. Up there, I learned more about the scriptures. We got, we got deeper. Um, and not only did I learn that the Christian life is not just a set of rules, which is basically what I had been living before, but that Jesus was a person that entered history, came to save souls, that uh, he had left us with his word that he has preserved over the years, and that those scriptures are alive, and they're living, and if you study them, and if you live by them, and if you meditate on them, and if you apply them, 
then you will grow in him. Because before that, I had basically, you know, lived a life where I feel many listeners may be living where you place faith in Jesus. Um, you know, you prayed a prayer back in the day and you, you may have even been sincere. You know, you weren't just afraid of hell. You may have actually placed faith in Jesus, but after that, you just kind of continued to live on a life of living rules and you never got deeper. You never got, uh, the meat of the word as it's, as it said. And uh, that's what I encountered at Word of Life. And I found out that Christian life was a lot deeper than I had thought and a lot more than what I had been living. I came, I came back home uh, with all this knowledge from Bible school, you know, and I was prepared to, you know, get involved in my church, to live wholeheartedly for God and use all the knowledge that I had gained. But the head is a long ways away from the heart. And you can know as much as you want about the Bible, but if your heart is not seeking after the Lord and to do His will and to know Him better, uh, you're not going to get very far. You're not going to impact many people. You're not going to grow in your faith. That was a lesson I had to learn after Bible school, and I think many listeners may know of a lot of Christians out there that could quote a lot of Scripture and could tell you a lot about the Bible, but are not prepared to love you as a person, uh, show you that same love that you read about that Jesus gave people in the scriptures. And uh, I think that's a big problem in our church today. It certainly was a problem in my life and uh, something that I still deal with up until today. But today I still attend Calvary Bible Church. I'm still growing in my faith. I'm trying to know the Lord better, try to worship Him in all aspects, uh, not just my mind, but in what I do and how I live in everything that I do in my thought life and in my actions. And uh, I would encourage you as a listener that if you have not placed faith in Jesus Christ to not look at the Christian you know, to not to look at them as example, but look at Christ, um, to study the scripture for yourselves, uh, get to know him, actively seek him. I would encourage you to place faith in his finished work on the cross as your only way to heaven. And uh, if you are a Christian, if you've made that decision, but Christianity may not have worked out for you, I would invite you to uh, maybe look at the scriptures and not people. Seek out a pastor and, and talk to them if you have questions. And thank you for listening. And now, help for the hurting with the director of the Christian Counseling Center, Pastor Frederick Arnett. Good morning again, and thank you for having us in your homes. Uh, in the studio with me again this morning is Deborah Arnett. And my question for you this morning, Deborah, is what two gifts can a parent entrust to his or her children that will have a profound impact on their lives? There are a number of different things that can be suggested. There are two that come to mind as I think of our country and different challenges that we're facing. The first one is that I believe a great gift that a parent can give to their child or children would be to foster a knowing of who they are. In other words, helping your child to form an adaptive identity. Okay. One that will be functional in an adaptive way. A sense of who am I as a person. Um, one of the things that I used to do when I worked at the Christian Counseling Center with children and adolescents, particularly with my adolescents, the first question I would ask them in the first session would be, who are you? And I would listen for the definition of self. And it was astounding to see the number of adolescents and children 
who would look at me and it was evident on their facial expressions they really did not have a definition of self. Now, granted, that is something that is formed over time, but they didn't even have a very clear vocabulary and their initial response would be, I don't know. And again, adolescence is the age where you form identity, but it wasn't even as if it was something that they had begun to significantly think about. And I think that that is very important, and I believe that the identity of a child is initiated through his or her interactions with his or her parents. Um, Particularly, I believe the fathers play a very important role in defining who your child is. Your words are powerful and they shape your child, not just in this moment, but the entire course of your child's life. And so it is important as a parent that you speak over them life. I've said this before, but it is very important. I've sat with adolescents who can repeat to me verbatim the negative, unproductive, life-slaying words spoken over them that they hold to and that they sometimes use as a justification to engage in unproductive activities. And so clearly the parents have power, more power than the parents would like to believe that they have. And one of their greatest tools are their words. Specifically for those who are of the Christian faith and would recognize the importance of identity, I think it's very important from a very tender age to begin to unpack for a child their understanding of who they are in God or Christ, that we are created in the image of God. Because I believe that it shapes, again, the child's understanding of not only him or herself, but who they are in relation to their God, particularly if that is the way that you intend to raise your child, and that is the upbringing that you want your child to have. The other thought related to helping to shape your child's identity or to provide perspective for your child in who they are is... How willing are you to study your child? So a lot of parents have goals and dreams for their children. Um, They have a lot of thoughts about what they want their son to be that they've been thinking about before they even conceived Mm -hmm. the child. Mm -hmm. But there aren't a lot of parents who articulate an intimate intent to know their child. Again, to refer to the Christian community, a lot of individuals will assert that this is a gift from God, that this child was given to me by God, that God has a purpose for this child. But they're not spending time observing the child's passions, strengths, interests, skills, and then feeding those passions, strengths, interests, and skills. Um, Sometimes a parent will promote a specific passion. Mm Or they will zone in on one that they identify with and vicariously try to live their life through their child. And they don't seem to honor the parent that is the distinctive makeup you know as a mom i am so and so this is who i am but my daughter grace this is who she is and god has a specific purpose for her so a lot of times you'll find parents trying to create or craft a carbon copy of themselves through the life of their child Mm -hmm. or correct mistakes that they made over the course of their life through the life of their child. And I think it's so important to know who is this individual that God has entrusted to you and then help them to form a sense of self. Do you you think uh, this is the reason why we are encouraged through the word to bring up the child in the way he or she should go? Because they are different. You can have a dozen children and you won't find two of them alike. And you can't discipline them the same way. Is this one of the reasons you think we need to get to know the child so you can deal with them as individuals rather than as children? 
I think that that is the beginning of, of it, and I do believe that that is an important part of what God was articulating through the author of that text. Mm -hmm. um, it is important to understand and know his purpose for the child, mm -hmm. above all else. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not in any way advocating that you just let a child tell you how he or she should live his or her life. Mm -hmm. I am saying, though, you be intentional in knowing the skills and the giftings and the abilities that this child possess and that are adaptive and healthy and you promote those things so that they become the individuals that he predestined for them to become. Okay. Thank you very much, Deborah, again, and we will pick up from here next time. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 a.m., in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior.